Thank you. It's uh, really good to be here. Uh, nice to uh, see you again. And um, yeah, I am kind of vaguely aware that um, the accent is a thing where I could be re reading the instructions for a microwave and people would be like, yeah, that's really interesting. <laughs> but I have actually brought some other stuff that's to do with the Bible this morning, so that's good. Um, it is really, really nice to be here, and uh, thanks for the welcome. Um, it'll be good to be with some more of you uh, this afternoon and uh, this evening to talk more specifically about the work uh, that we're involved with and have some time for uh, Q&A as well. And um, uh, we're going to be looking together this morning at Genesis chapter 18, which apparently, now Colby, you see, arranges all this, and then he's not here today. <laughs> Although, Colby, I guess you're watching. I hope you feel better soon. Uh, but uh, Colby asked me to speak from Genesis 18. He said, we've got this really interesting idea for a series through Advent, uh, looking at Old Testament birth narratives and how they to Jesus. And I, at first I thought, oh, can I just have like Matthew 1? <laughs> really? But um, as I've had a look at it, and we talked about it and thought about it, actually it is a great idea. So we're going to start off in Genesis 18. It's thinking about the birth of Isaac this morning. So uh, if you have that open in front of you, and I'm going to uh, read the first part of Genesis chapter 18, and then we'll think about what it has to say to us and how it helps us understand Jesus better as well. So Genesis 18, verse 1. And the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre, and as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran the tent door to meet them, and bowed himself to the earth, and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah, and said, Quick, Three seers of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham uh, ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have this pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything... Too hard for the Lord? The appointed time I will return to you, about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Wow. <laughs> so we're going to try and get into the story and uh, try and live in it a bit, try and get the feel of it, and then uh, going to ask some questions to try and pull it uh, together. It's quite hard to imagine the scene here in some ways, isn't it? You know, the world we live in is so massively different from uh, what uh, uh, is, is here. Uh, you know, we're talking about nomadic people. It's basically a Bedouin who's living in the Bronze Age. That's what we're talking about. 
2,000 years or so BC, uh, in the Middle East, in the heat of the day, and um, Abraham is doing what all sensible people uh, in that culture would do in the middle of the day, which is nothing. <laughs> because, you know, that whole relaxation thing in the middle of the day, which many hot parts of the world need, not so much in England. It's never really caught on as a thing, never needed. Um, but, you know, in lots of Eastern first countries and cultures, there is this need, isn't there, to relax in the middle of the day in the heat. You haven't got air con and so on. Um, so that's one thing. You also see a, a, another element of Eastern culture coming out here, which is this really strong hospitality uh, feature. And, and again, we see that in, in more Eastern faith cultures, that it's emphasized much more. I remember seeing something of this in uh, Albania about 10 years ago, uh, when I was in a little village, a few of us were visiting, and so it was a little more traditional than even the, the cities uh, would be over there. It was an agricultural community, people kind of living hand-to-mouth. And over the course of an afternoon with them, I saw both of these things. We were sat together, um, you know, eating. There was lessons in hospitality for this clock-watching Westerner. You know, we're sat around the table. I'm basically treating mealtime as a refueling stop, kind of shoveling it down. And they're bringing more and more. And I'm thinking, I need to get this down. There's a lot here. There's more coming before I finish this lot. And uh, eventually, the, one of the guys looked at me and he went, Whoa, just, just slow down. He got the fork and he looked at me and he went, the fork needs to spend lots of time on the side of the plate. This is about people. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, shh, shh, shh. So that was one little lesson. And the other one was, when we finished, uh, there was the siesta culture. They said, we've put a couple of mattresses for you and your colleague in this room. And I just looked at them like, why? <laughs> it's one o'clock, it's two o'clock, whatever it was. And then clocked on, you know, a li little bit slow. And thought I can definitely get with that program. But, uh, you know, well now, it's not quite the same as this, but it's a step closer to the reality for Abraham because it's hot. He's resting. He's standing in the shade of the trees where he's got his tents. And as he stands there, he sees three men walking. And so, obviously, they're out in the heat of the day, too. They're surely tired in need of a, a rest, hospitality. And, and Abraham seems to go even beyond traditional Eastern expectations at this point because he chases them down. You know, this is an old man. You see that? And he's running to them. Please come. He, he positions himself as their servant in verses 3 to 5. Let me give you water. Rest. Wash your feet. Let me bring you a morsel of bread. Let me serve you. And it's a beautiful posture, isn't it? Which, by the way, the New Testament flags for us in Hebrews as a model of hospitality. You know, hospitality not just inviting your friends round, but inviting those who need it round. And some have entertained angels unawares, because that's who they're labeled as at the beginning of chapter 19. Maybe Abraham didn't know that at this point, but these three men show up. One of them, you could debate this later, I'll ask your pastors, but maybe one of them was even a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus, the angel of the Lord. I don't know. One of them speaks as Lord, but whoever they were, they're certainly angelic guests. And so they welcome the offer. Abraham and Sarah snap into action. Sarah's making some bread cakes. Abraham uh, goes to uh, have a young man prepare a calf as a meal. Presumably they sit around in the heat of the day while it's prepared. And, and maybe he, Abraham didn't have a clear idea who they were at this point, but very quickly they start, he starts to realize these are no ordinary visitors because they make some startling comments. I mean, first of all, they say that they, they seem to know Sarah's name. Where is Sarah, your wife? You'll be like, what? <laughs> you know, Sarah? Where was she? Well, she was hanging out in the tent. 
out of sight, but listening to every word. I remember doing that as a kid. <laughs> My parents got guests around on the stairs, listening. And what she hears is also startling, what's said to her and Abraham. Basically, I'll see you again next year, and Sarah will have a son. Now, how do they respond to this? You know, they're old. They are really old. Um, and that affects how they feel about the promise, obviously, but also the significance of it. You know, she's n- about 90, he's 99. It, it's like, just to bring a little bit of England in here, it's like the Queen, right? This is going to get weird, but it should, because that's the point, okay? It's like the Queen, who is 95. Her husband, the Duke of Edinburgh, died earlier this year, two months short of his 100th birthday, right? Imagine at the beginning of this year, they had announced... They were expecting. Never mind Harry and Meghan. You know, <laughs> move over. The Queen and Prince Philip are delighted to announce that they are expecting a child in the fall. That, that's weird. I know, even saying it, that's weird. But that's how weird it is. We can just read some of these things, can't we? And they just seem familiar. It's so improbable as to be basically impossible. Now, the Lord had appeared to Abraham about 20 years older and told, uh, uh, earlier sorry, and told him about this. If you flick back with me to Genesis 12... This is the the whole thing it's based on, Genesis 12, verse 2 and 3, where he makes this promise to him, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and uh, him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And again, in uh, chapter 17 and verse 16, it's uh, said again to Sarah at this point, uh, I will, or of Sarah, I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. And maybe Sarah was struggling with this. You know, she laughs, doesn't she? The Lord challenges it and says, why did she laugh? It seems that she was struggling with unbelief, and, and that is really quite understandable, isn't it? Um, and, and the angel of the Lord then asks a question that you can ponder in moments of struggle and unbelief yourself. It is a fantastic question, isn't it, in verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? That is a great question to camp out on for a bit. Is anything too hard for the Lord? You can just turn that around in your head. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Just... I could just sit down for a bit, <laughs> and we could think about that. It seemed like such a huge and difficult thing, didn't it? But the extreme nature of the promise was actually part of its power, because I'm late 40s, okay? It's the big one next year. If 20 years ago, somebody had said to me and my wife, Emma, this time next year, you're going to have a baby, I'd have thought, okay, that's good. Frankly, it's pretty likely, I think, anyway. And, um, you know, but thanks. It's good to know. All right? If 20 years on from now, somebody says to me, next year, you and your wife are going to have a baby. First of all, I'm going to think, oh, please, no. <laughs> I really, really hope not. Um, secondly, it, it would just be such a ridiculous suggestion in your late 60s that somebody would say that to you, let alone in your 90s. But then the thing is this, if it happened, wow. You know, if it happened as predicted in my 20s, 
I would think, okay, but you know, maybe the odds are it would have happened anyway. It doesn't mean God's not involved, but it's less striking. If it happens in your later years, it's more than an okay or a, even a wow. It is, we're talking utter jaw-dropping astonishment, aren't we? Because the, this can only be God. And that's the thing, isn't it? There's no mistaking what this is. And the waiting, um, in a sense, adds to the significance of it. One commentator, George, uh, Joyce Baldwin, writes, prayers that receive no immediate answer, though they are based on God's word, they can be a source of considerable unease. Like Sarah, the praying person may conclude that God has either not heard the petition or is limited in his capabilities. Whereas the explanation in this incident lay in quite another direction. Now that Sarah is past the usual age for childbearing, the son of her womb will in an unusual sense be the child of promise. The delay, far from indicating any limitation of God's power, showed rather God's total control over events. Suddenly, when God's time comes, his purposes blossom like a long-awaited spring. Waiting is hard, isn't it? It is hard. Maybe there are multiple applications for some of you this morning with this. Hanging on to faith can be hard. You wonder what's going on. Another day passes. Nothing seems to happen. Hang on in there. This was Abraham and, and Sarah's reality too. We can trust God. In their case, in their story, it happened. Flick forward with me and we'll read a little bit of uh, Genesis 21 now. Because uh, in Genesis 21, verse 1 to 7, the angel shows up again. Just as... Uh, he said he would a year later. So Genesis 21, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Camp out on those words as well. The Lord did as he had promised. Always does. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me, and everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The child is born, and they name him Isaac. Now, why? Why does any of this matter? I want to ask some questions to try and think about this. I want to try and think about why it mattered for Abraham and Sarah, why it mattered for the nation of Israel, why it mattered for the world, and then we're going to try and think about how it has worship Jesus this Christmas. Okay, so we're going to do those things. First of all, why it mattered to Abraham and Sarah. Their faith had been tested over 20 long years, hadn't it? In, in one sense, it's kind of obvious why it mattered to them. They, they wanted a baby. But, you know, just think they've been living with promise, hanging over them for all of those years. And what does that do to you? That, that can be, it can really wear you down, can't it? As, as we thought before, you know, waiting is hard at the best of times, possibly even more in our kind of cultures where, you know, we expect everything to be instant and we shout at the microwave to hurry up and the coffee machine isn't quick enough. And, you know, they had waited and waited and waited and waited. They were in their 70s when the promise first came. And as time passes, it can only seem less and less likely. It seems less real to us very often. 
if you feel like that sometimes. I think we can feel like that about a number of promises in God's word. We, we think somehow that the passing of time makes them less likely. But why does that follow? You know, we can think, for example, about the second coming of Christ, can't we? We think, oh, 2,000 years? I remember years ago when I was a school teacher teaching just north of London, there was something going on in the school and there was a bit of unhappiness. I remember a few of the staff were standing around in my classroom at the end of the day talking about some things and how they needed to change and wishing they would change. The janitor walked through and he just snorted when he heard what we were talking about and said, there's more chance of the second coming of Christ, which technically was true. (laughs) He was right, but he didn't mean it as a statement of faith. Uh, That was not his point. He was being sarcastic. Yeah, and, and, and the whole idea is that people think that years have passed. That's never going to happen. And, and that's maybe the case we can think for many of God's promises. But as it said, as we noticed just at the beginning of chapter 21, God will do what he has promised. Time doesn't mean that it's not true. But as time passed, Abraham and Sarah found it hard to hang on. You know, they wondered if, how. They tried to see if they could bring it about some other ways. They took matters into their own hands. Abraham took Hagar as another wife at Sarah's suggestion to see if that could be the means of fulfillment. That was never going to be a great plan, was it? You know, and then they grappled with it for, for years, and then it happens. And you just, you, the, the flood of relief and joy, and hence the whole laughter theme. Did you pick up on that? It goes through these, these chapters kind of riff on that a little bit, don't they? So that in chapter 17, God says to Abraham, call him Isaac, and the footnote says it means laughter. And then in chapter 18, Sarah laughs out of disbelief and then denies it. And then in chapter 21, the boy is born. He's named Isaac, laughter. And Sarah testifies, God has made laughter for me, and everyone who hears will laugh with me. Outrageous joy just bubbling up for Sarah and those who have walked with her as the impossible becomes possible. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Can God reactivate a reproductive system that he made in the first place? Can he re-energize a body? Of course he can. Can he bypass normal biological processes? Just in general, full stop, period. Can he cause even a virgin's womb to be with child? Of course he can. The Lord did what he had promised. And so for Abraham and Sarah, this was the culmination of more than two decades of painful faith journey, and God had shown himself to be faithful. And there's deep satisfaction and joy in that, isn't there? And some of you know this, some of you feel it. It was referenced earlier, wasn't it, in the women's event last night? To hear stories like that is really important. We need, as church communities, to hear those stories. Faith building. And they help us to hang it. That's why so many of these things are in the Bible. We look back, and it helps us to look forward. They're faith builders. God is faithful. And it meant the world to Abraham and Sarah. It was a source of joy, a source of laughter. The joy was overflowing. But then, second, why why did it matter for the nation of Israel? Kind of bringing it out a little bit. See, we're reading the book of Genesis here, okay? Part of the Pentateuch, the Torah. These are the foundational documents of the nation of Israel. On Thursday, I visited and looked at the foundational documents of your nation. I was, uh, went to the National Archive in Washington, D.C., saw the U.S. Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, 
You know that whole thing when you decided you didn't need us anymore? <laughs> I'm not going to take it personally, but you know. <laughs> My daughter was very excited that I saw Alexander Hamilton's actual signature on the US Constitution, which is funny, isn't it? Because who'd heard of him two years ago? Well, I hadn't, anyway. Uh, but these are precious documents, aren't they? And they're visited by thousands of people every year. Some, and some say it's quite an emotional experience for uh, you know, some, some of you guys as you visit. And you kind of say, this, is, this defines something of who you are. These books of the Pentateuch are the foundational documents of the nation of Israel. They would be read, they would be memorized, they'd meditated on. It was their heritage that God brought about this nation as he'd promised. It's not just the child who was unlikely. It was the whole nation that followed uh, from him. This would be remembered and reflected on. This is where we came from. This is who we are. This nation owes its uh, reality to the improbable but powerful promise of God. So it matters for Abraham and Sarah and for the nation of Israel, but also we need to think why it matters for the world. Because, you see, we're just expanding out and out here, aren't we? This is the plan of God for the world. This is the mission of God. It's a global enterprise. You know, and I'm not just saying that, you know, oh, yeah, that's your thing. You know, you work for that mission network. You would say that, wouldn't you? Shoehorn it in. Um, but, you know, it's here, isn't it? Because, in fact, actually, it's throughout the whole Bible. Um, there's a, a book called The Mission of God, which is um, written by a British guy called Chris Wright, Northern Irish guy. It's a big doorstop of a book, right? And um, one of the, my tutors back in the day called it the best Bible uh, overview he'd ever read. And one of the things that's really interesting is where Chris Wright, who, uh, he recounts how he came to write it. And he was uh, a lecturer in a Christian college, later became the principal of it. He was asked to do a course on the biblical basis of mission. And after a bit, he said, well, I don't really want to call it that. I don't want to talk about the biblical basis of mission. I think I should talk about the missional basis of the Bible, which is a kind of subtle but significant difference. Because, you know, you can talk about biblical basis for all kinds of things like, you know, the biblical basis of marriage or baptism or church governance or earth care or whatever. You can kind of draw together the different strands where mission is different because the whole thing's about mission. Wherever you cut it, wherever you open it, the theme flows out because it's all about God's mission in this world. And so whether it's in the Pentateuch, in the history, in the Psalms, in the prophets, in the New Testament, in the epistles, you know, we sometimes treat the epistles like they're sort of doctoral theses, don't we, to, that have emerged out of academia. But the letters written from a men on a mission to a bunch of people out on mission who were trying to figure out how to make this thing work. That's what they are. And so, um, really, the, the, in many ways, the promise, the story of the promise of Isaac's birth is the launch of the whole thing. Because, as we read, all nations will be blessed through you, Abraham, and this son, that you will have. And through then on, his, this descendant, Jesus, who will come, who is the ultimate seed of Abraham, isn't he? And the one who will very specifically then be the, the means through which uh, the nations are blessed. And this means when we think about it this way, that we find ourselves right in the middle of this ongoing development, don't we? This unfolding story. We're in it. Okay? That's why this is not a boring history lecture. You sometimes think, you know, what, what do we do here? We, like, study old documents? It's like a really bad version of a history class. But it's not, because it's present. It's real. It's now. We live in the middle of it. 
Some of my work has meant that I've seen some of this expressed in incredible places. You know, the mountains of Myanmar, now tragically war-torn. Out in the Gobi Desert of uh, Mongolia, where you've got nomadic peoples meeting in tents, very much like um, uh, Abraham's situation. How do you plant a church in the Gobi Desert? You put up a gear, a yurt, and off you go. Start meeting. That's how they do it. In Pakistan, in India, in Ireland, in multicultural Britain, wherever it is, God has his people everywhere, and it's always looking up and out and where next, because that's what this started. It's all part of the fulfillment of that promise. God is doing his thing in his mission for the world, and its roots are here in Genesis. So it matters for the world, it matters for Abraham and Sarah, the nation of Israel. But we were that, one thing then finally, and try and draw this together and make it vaguely Christmassy. But to think, why does this? help us worship Jesus this Christmas. Because the story of Isaac is a shadow of what was to come, isn't it? It's kind of like a prequel. It's like my kids have just been watching, or my younger kids have just been watching, um, the earlier, how to explain it, the one, two, three of Star Wars, you know? Now, I know some people kind of want to go, they don't count, they're not real, you know, some people, they like them. But actually, as a, when you watch the originals, and then you go back, whatever you think about some of the, you know, acting, the, to get the background story is quite, Interesting, people are like, oh, right, that's Anakin. That, some of you are thinking, that's really dull. What is he talking about? But, you know, the, the prequel thing, it's like this is the story, this is the background, because Christmas didn't just start when Jesus was born. Jesus didn't start when Jesus was born. <laughs> that's a kind of a bit of a head flip, isn't it? A promised child who's coming was a step change, Isaac. It was a massive jump forward. In God's plan for the world, it was a new era. And that was obviously true of Jesus too, on a much greater level. There's a very real sense in which the birth of Isaac was important, mainly because it paved the way for the birth of Jesus. And so one of the things I think this encourages us to do is to think big this Christmas. Just enlarge your, version, your vision of Jesus and be filled with hope and faith. Let your mind and heart be expanded. Yeah, a baby is born, but it's much more than that. It's an impossible promise, long-waited-for baby. A promise, a person through whom uh, all the promises of God are being fulfilled, the redemption, the healing, the restoration of all things. That's what Jesus' birth brings about, the restoration of all things. That's huge. And it's all part of this same big plan, the mission of God. God will make everything right. He'll redeem, he'll bring justice, he'll bring peace. That's some of what the Isaiah passage was about at the beginning, wasn't it? Somebody said I'd suddenly clocked why that passage was linked. That's what it's about. For those of uh, you who are, who are not maybe followers of Jesus this morning, maybe you're just guests, maybe you're coming along, maybe you come with family, maybe you're not sure what you think, you're just visiting. Please be clear that whatever else it is, this Christmas season is an invitation to get on board with and, in, and join this family and this movement that is a massive movement of humanity through the ages and on into eternity. This is an invitation to be part of that. You are welcome to rethink your life, to reorient yourself around Jesus. Come, follow him. For those of us who are followers of Jesus already, this story of Isaac should be a great 
reminder of the greatness of Jesus, shouldn't it, and the wonder of his global story and, and cause us to worship. And, you know, there's also a sense in which I think this story can be an encouragement as we play our part in that to know God is at work and nothing can stop this wonderful plan of hope. Nothing. So not a barren, aged womb, not faithless alternative fixes, not the length of time, not the struggle of unbelief, not a virgin's womb, not Herod's jealous rage, not opposition in whatever form it finds itself today, not all of the incompetence and confusion of us sometimes as Jesus followers, or the faithless alternatives that we sometimes find, or our mistakes, failures, limitations, weakness, arrogance, fear. I mean, those things are, it's not that none of those things are a problem, but we don't need to worry that we're going to accidentally derail God's plan. Because he is bigger than that. He is bigger than all these things, and he will work out his plan through his promised son as he blesses the world. So let hope rise. Laughter, outrageous joy this Christmas. There should be laughter. It is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Let me finish with some words, a bit of poetry. Words from a song by Michael Card years ago. He wrote this, a barren land and a barren wife made Abraham laugh at his wandering life. A cruel joke, it seemed then, to call him the father of nations. A heavenly prank, a celestial joke, because gray hair and babies leave no room for hope. But hoping is something this hopeless old man learned to do. They called him laughter, for he came after the father made an impossible promise come true. The birth of a baby to a hopeless old lady. So they called him laughter because no other name would do. A cry in the darkness and laughter at night, an elderly couple sat holding him tight. An improbable infant, a punchline, a promise come true. They laughed till they wept, and then they laughed at their tears. This miracle baby they'd wanted for years would make a messiah to bring us impossible joy. You want some of that this Christmas? I do. Let's get a hold of something bigger, a bigger picture this Christmas, and experience impossible joy together. Let's pray. God, we acknowledge your greatness this morning. Your power is beyond what we can conceive of. It is huge. You can do things that we cannot comprehend. You have done many things that we cannot comprehend. We pray that you would build faith in us to believe promises that you have made, that you will do what you've promised, and that you have the power to do it. And we pray you'd help us to be faithful followers of that. And Lord, as we celebrate uh, Christmas in the coming weeks, as your son entered this world, Lord, that history-changing event that was planned so far before and was emerging throughout the whole course of the Bible and its ramifications are still being worked out today. Thank you that we get to be a part of that story. We're in the same story as, as Abraham and Sarah and Isaac. And Lord, we thank you that our destinies are tied to your sons. Would you give us joy, laughter, peace, hope, and faith to live in the light of all these things and may that blessing on our lives overflow to bless 
those around and about here and the far-flung parts of the world too. For your great glory's sake. Amen. <laughs>